excited when we came to this passage because I was looking through just pastorally at the, the messages that we've done over the last several weeks, including our series that we wrapped up, uh, not last week, but the, before that. And there's been a lot of intense messages, a lot of messages that are give it all to Jesus and go all out. And I think today is going to be a refreshment for our soul, kind of the, uh, the fire, you know, kind of what gets that going. What is the, the gas that makes that engine run? And I hope that your hearts will be encouraged today. And so I'm just going to pray for us, and then we're going to open up this passage of Scripture that a lot of people call the transfiguration and get a glimpse of God's glory. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, meet with us as we open up the Scriptures. I pray as we come and we look at some guys who got a glimpse of your glory that we would get a glimpse of your glory. I pray as we come to the Scriptures, we wouldn't come just for information. Information's not bad. I just pray that you'd give us an encounter with you. You promise that your word is living and we want to have an encounter with the living word, your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray as we open up the scripture, you refresh our souls and uh, give us the, the motivation that we need. Give us the, uh, the fuel that we need to carry out the commands that you give. Thank you for your spirit empowering us. I pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts through your word right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have you ever noticed when you get a, a small taste of something good, it makes you want more of that thing? And I was just thinking in our, in our lives how many times that's true. And there's all kinds of different venues and avenues that happens. And think about when you see a good movie coming out and they'll give a 30-second or one-minute movie trailer. And at the end of it, you think, I need to see that movie. Now, if it's not a good movie, you go see the movie. And afterwards, you're like, I saw everything I needed to see in the trailer. It was all right. All the good jokes were in the trailer. All the, you know, the action scenes, they were in the trailer. But if it's a good movie, you're just getting a sampling. You're just getting a small amount and it makes you want more. Now, I was also thinking our church, we've got, the nursery's always full at our church, and so there's lots of people that are having babies, and babies come, seems like, regularly in our, in our congregation. And you think about those of you who've had those babies, you're pregnant, and you start to show, and you start to anticipate that baby. And then you go, and many people will get an ultrasound, and maybe you find out the gender of the baby, and you see a picture-ish kind of thing of the baby, and it makes you want to meet that baby even more. Or if you have a meal... You get an appetizer. The appetizer is supposed to whet your appetite for what's to come, what the rest of the food is going to be like. And this week, I was able to go to Dallas, Texas. And some of you know me, know that well, we've lived in Dallas for four years before we came here. And I love Tex-Mex food. Now, my wife, yes. Amen. We got a Houstoner over here. Yes. And when I landed uh, in the, at the airport, a friend came and picked me up. And we were driving away. It was about 6 o'clock. And he said, how are you doing on hunger? And I was trying to be casual and play it off. I said, well, I could eat. I was ready to devour some Tex-Mex. And then he said, what kind of food do you want? And I had, it was a slightly offensive comment at that moment because he knew I had just arrived. He knew I had been deprived of the Tex-Mex Texas food. And so I didn't say to him, do you even know me? But I just, I just played it off. Hey, well, let's get some Tex-Mex. He knew right where to go. So we pull into this place. Now, my wife, if you've watched her Facebook or social media stuff, you know that she's a, more of a foodie. And you may put that on me and assume that I am. She likes unique ingredients. She eats kale. <laughs> voluntarily. Like, I eat it because she puts it in front of me. Here's my theory on food. Anything that's good is better with cheese. Okay? So cheese is good. And so the waiter comes out and he says, do you want some queso? I don't have to think about this, but you want to play it off for a minute? We should try some of that queso. So he brings the queso out. Now, let me tell you something. You can have a good day and you can have a queso day. (laughs) If you find yourself at any point in time in a day eating queso, it's a good day. And he brings the queso out. I'm eating the queso. Surprise, there was meat in this queso. Is that not like a bonus? Like, you ever eat a salad? Maybe this is just me. You eat a salad and you're like, okay, okay, okay. There was chicken. Like, there was something, there was something in that bite. Well, I'm eating the queso and there's meat and sour cream mixed in. This is like amazing queso. Apparently, I was being possessive with it because my friend looked over and goes, did you order that just for you? Or 
He really said that. And I was like, no, no, no. Not that I'd have been offended had he not eaten any. But it was just a small little cup of queso. And I know the mistake can be in Mexican food, especially that you can eat so many chips, you're not even hungry when your meal comes. But the point of an appetizer is to whet your appetite. In fact, I looked it up on dictionary.com. They gave these two definitions. An appetizer they defined as a small amount of food served before at the beginning of a meal to stimulate the desire to eat. <laughs> I was ready to eat before we got there. But second one, second definition they gave, any small portion that stimulates a desire for more or that more is to come. That's what an appetizer is supposed to do. That is what our passage of Scripture is designed to do today. What happens in our passage of Scripture is that Jesus gives a glimpse of his glory, which should then make our appetite grow to want more and more of him. And so my hope for you today, as we open up the passage of Scripture we're going to look at, is that you'll get a glimpse of God's glory. It'll give you a desire to hear from him and more motivation to do the very hard things that he's called us to do in following him. And I was just thinking about this passage and thinking about how many people need a word of encouragement I was reminded of a, a quote that came from a book, and the first time I read this quote, it's just stuck with me ever since, from our own Anne Grand Lotz, where she says in her book, Just Give Me Jesus. She says, after a year in her life that was busy and some difficult stuff happened, she said, my, my duties and responsibilities at times seem overwhelming. Anybody relate with that? My schedule's overfilled, but I don't want a vacation. Oh, Anne, I might not agree with you on that one. She said, I don't want to quit. I don't want, a sim- I don't want sympathy. I don't want money. I don't want recognition. I don't want to escape. I don't even want a miracle. This book is the cry of my heart. Just give me Jesus, please. And my hope for you today is that when we're done looking at this passage of Scripture is that you'll want more of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 today. We'll start off in verse 1. And for those of you who might be joining us for the first time today, I'll just tell you what's happened in the book of Mark so far is the first eight chapters are about who is this Jesus. In fact, Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 says, this is the good news, the euangelion, the gospel. Some of your translations say a different word means the same thing. It's the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the whole first part of the book, up to chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, is who answering the question, who is this Jesus? Finally, he asks his closest followers, these 12 guys that he calls his disciples, Who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? And it climaxes when Peter, one of the most outspoken of the guys, one of his closest guys, says, you are the Christ. And we get Matthew tells us, the son of the living God, the very thing that Mark chapter 1 verse 1 tells us. And so then it's like, all right, wrap it up. We got it. We know who he is. But they don't understand what that means. And so we saw last week, he explains it in verses 31 through 33. That means a cross. That means I have to die. And then he goes in verse 34. It says, if anyone... Anyone, not just those 12 guys, not just the crowd that was there, but us. If anybody's going to follow me, it means you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And then he ended that after talking about, hey, what does it get, do to, good does it do you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? And he talks through all that stuff. But verse 38 was really about the second coming. And it was a verse that alludes to his judgment that's coming at the second coming. It says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him, When he comes, he's alluding to the fact he's coming back. The Son of Man is Jesus Christ. We saw that last week. When he comes back in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And we stopped there last week. That was a tough teaching. And then verse 1 picks up and it says this. And he said to them, so this is to the twelve and the crowd, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now some people will read that and think, well, some of these guys that were standing here aren't going to die before Jesus comes back again. If you just read chapter 9, verse 1, it sounds like that. But if you read all of the book of Mark, you know that can't be what he's saying. Because in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, he says, No one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son. Only God the Father knows when Jesus is going to come back. 
So he's not saying to them here, my second coming, you're going to be alive when the second coming happens. And if you keep reading, what you find out is what he was prophesying was what was going to happen in about a week later when he would give them a glimpse of his glory. So you read verse 2 and look what happens. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, some who were standing there, not all, with him, led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, the prophets and the law, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, understatement of the millennium, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then Mark, Peter's friend, is so gracious. He didn't know what to say. He's just talking. They were so frightened. And so here you got in this passage of scripture, Jesus gives an incredibly difficult command. If anyone is going to come follow me, anybody is going to follow me, it means self-denial. It means a cross, not just a cross for your Messiah, but a cross for your life. These guys could use some encouragement. Anybody here need some encouragement today? If If your life has gone exactly the way that you thought it was going to go, let me tell you something. You're the only one. Don't tell anyone else. They won't like you. Things aren't going the way that they expected things to go. They thought when Messiah came that he would just come in glory. He'd overthrow Rome, which was oppressing the people. He'd be a political ruler. He'd transform their culture. Their lives would be more comfortable. They'd be easier. And he just told them basically the opposite. I am the Christ. I'm going to be murdered by your religious leaders. And it's going to mean a cross for you. Then he gives us some crazy promise. In chapter 9, verse 1, But some of you, before you taste death, you're going to see the power of the kingdom of God. And then what's happening in this passage is he's he's given an answer to that promise. It's not the same as when they see him post-resurrection. It's not the same as when he comes back the second time. It's just a glimpse of his glory. But it's enough to show them, I really am the Christ. And this really is good, and you should want more, but you've got a mission to do. And so what they need is they need a glimpse of his glory. What we need, we must behold God's glory. We must Behold the glory of God. And if you think about it, we want that in our souls. Some of you might be here and you're like, well, I just do you know, a church thing. And sometimes I come to church. And sometimes I'm too busy or I just want to sleep in. And I'm not really hungry for the glory of God. You are. It's in your soul. It's in each one of us. And you see it all the time. You see it yesterday. A lot of people were designed to worship. A lot of people were worshiping football. Football's not bad. Don't hear the wrong thing. I watched football yesterday. Not wrong to watch football. But for many people, it's a longing for glory. It's a longing to see something bigger than themselves. They want to be a part of something bigger. It's a hole in our soul. And so they go after. But here's the problem. Football can become ultimate for people. The same can be true. I can take football out and insert something else. Art. There are probably people that walked through art museums yesterday. And you want to see something that taps into the desire for glory, the desire to worship that is within each one of us. Or people that are in love, you've heard this statement. Sometimes it's actually true. He worships the ground she walks on. Not wrong to be in love. Wrong when that person becomes ultimate in your life. And what you're doing in that moment is you're exchanging the desire that God's put in you for the very glory of God, the glory that only he can fulfill when you behold his glory with creation. Romans chapter 1 talks about this in verse 23. It says, although they were claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the creator, for images made by us, creation, to look like mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. And we read that and we think, we don't do that silly stuff like they did in the Old Testament, worshiping crafts and idols. But we do. We just do it in different ways. 
We make lesser things the ultimate thing, and we begin to worship that thing, but what it should be a sign of is you have a desire in your heart for glory. And what happens here is these guys, they get a glimpse of that glory. Try and imagine what it was like. If you go back in this passage and, and just walk with me through it, and think about what it was like for them to hike up this mountain. This mountain, many scholars, modern scholars believe, was Mount Hermon. It's about 9,000 feet above sea level. And so sometimes when we read the Bible, we just look at it and we go, and they went up the mountain. (laughs) Two seconds later, they're at the top of the mountain. You read Luke's account and you find out they went up there to pray and then they're sleeping. And so we start mocking them because they're sleeping. Well, they just hiked up a 9,000 foot mountain. So if you, at the end of that, if you worked out really hard and then someone said, hey, let's pray, what do you think is going to happen to you? And, And we know as readers of the Bible, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, then you know that when people go up on top of a mountain, whenever there's a high mountain, God reveals himself. It's a sign of revelation. And so just the fact that he's going up on a mountain is, builds anticipation for us, like the appetizer's coming. And you see in this passage of scripture all kinds of parallels with what happens with Moses on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with that, what happens is Moses goes up with three named men and 70 elders. Here's Jesus going up with three named men. You get to the top of this mountain, what happens? A cloud appears, a voice comes from the cloud. We're going to see that in just a minute. And when Moses comes down, he's shining. He's glowing from the glory of God. When we get up here, you see that the authors of the scripture, they try to describe this light. It's not just shining off of Jesus, it's radiating from Jesus. And the voice speaks from the cloud. It's all these parallels. And what Jesus is doing is he's coming as one greater than Moses. Not to undo the Old Testament, but to fulfill the Old Testament. That's why Elijah and Moses are there. But you imagine being these guys. They get up there at the top of this mountain. They wake up. And it says, and Mark says it in such an understated way in verse 2. It says, there he was, transfigured before them. Now, I don't know if you've seen paintings of the transfiguration before or not, but oftentimes what they do is they'll put a picture of Jesus that looks like what we see in a lot of pictures of Jesus, which I don't think that's probably what Jesus looked like anyways, but he'll be, you know, pale-skinned, uh, very-gentle-faced man that's standing usually with his arms open for you to come to him, and he's got Vedel Sassoon locks, like they're just flowing, beautiful hair. And what they do for the transfiguration is they put that same Jesus in a painting, but they backlight him really well. Like there's a lot of light coming around him, kind of glowing. The word transfigured means that he didn't look the same. It's metamorpho is the Greek term. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis. And so you think about a tadpole metamorphosizing into a frog. Tadpole doesn't look like a frog. Caterpillar metamorphosizing into a butterfly. Caterpillar doesn't look like a butterfly. What's happening here is Jesus didn't look the same as he did before. It's not just a light that's lighting up behind him. He's been transformed in his appearance. But they somehow still know that it's Jesus. And somehow they know Moses and Elijah are there. How do they know that, by the way? I don't think they were following him on Instagram. They'd never seen a picture of Moses. I don't think Moses was wearing a hello, my name is Moses tag. How do they, how do they know? Maybe Jesus introduced it. Can you imagine how overwhelming this experience would be? It says here, and when you read the different accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give an account of this, you can tell that the authors, they just don't know how to describe it. It's like there aren't words to describe seeing the glory of God. And so Mark says in verse 3, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. He's trying to come up with an analogy, and there just isn't an adequate analogy. And so you go to Luke's account, and Luke says in Luke chapter 9 and verse 29, As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. That's transfigured. He was changed in appearance, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. It's like Luke's thinking, what's the brightest thing I've ever seen? Matthew says it like this. In Matthew chapter 17 and verse 2, 
There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. It's the brightest thing I've ever seen. His clothes became as white as the light. So here they are. They get a glimpse of his glory. What do we know about his glory? We know that he's so glorious. By the way, just in case you didn't know, in Revelation it says that, that there won't be a need for sun or moon or anything like that, that God's glory will actually light the place. And the lamb will be a lamp. We know that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says that God dwells in unapproachable light. So the light is so bright, it would destroy us. Here they get a glimpse and God puts some protection on them because what he's doing with Jesus in this moment, it's like he's pulling back the veil of his humanity and he's allowing the the Christ that was there at the beginning of creation that spoke the world into existence to allow his glory to be seen. But just a glimpse. We know he says in the Old Testament, I'll let you see my back. You can't see my face. If you see my face, you'll die. They get a glimpse of this. Can you even imagine what that would be like? But here's what we know to be true. Jesus wants us to get a glimpse of his glory too. In John chapter 17, he says when he's praying his priestly prayer, he's praying for his disciples today, he's praying for disciples that will come, he's praying for lost people. He says, Father, I want those who you've given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. I want them to all see this glory. They're made with a desire for this glory. I want them to see this glory. And so the question for you is, do you, do you desire his glory? Do you long to be with him? I asked my nine-year-old daughter if I could share this week. I mentioned that I went out of town. She didn't know that I was going out of town until the morning of. And one of the reasons is uh, to spare myself the emotional trial of telling them that I'm going to be going out of town. And so that morning for breakfast, I said, hey, I'm getting on a plane today. Well, you guys are at school. I'm going to be going to Dallas. She's weeping and wailing starts, and it's a a mess. I'm getting hugged as tight as I can by little kids. And I feel very loved, but it it takes a little bit out of me. And so they go to the bus stop, and Shannon said they're still crying. And I thought, well, she'll go through her day, and then she'll be fine. Shanna said when they got off the bus that day, she was still upset. Where's dad? Dad's not here. Why is he not here? Saturday, I'm sitting out of the soccer field with her watching one of her sisters play. I said, how was school? You know, after I was gone, she said, well, I was still crying at school. I'm like, man, I feel terrible. I'm so sorry. But I felt very loved. And what it was is my being absent made her long for me even more. And I wonder if we long for Jesus like that. He's not with us. He's, not, he's with us. He's present. He'll be with us, but we don't see him. We don't see him face to face. And, and I can call my daughter, and I call that night, and we can, I can speak to her. It's not quite the same to hear from God as it is to see him. It's not quite the same to read. You know, I can write notes to her. It's not quite the same to read a note, to get information, as it is to be with someone. Here's the thing. He wants to be with you. How does he do it? He does it through his word. But Scott, you just said not to just read information, not just to hear from. Yeah, because he, it's not that the information's bad. It's not that him speaking to you is bad. It's that sometimes we look at reading the Bible as that's it. What he desires for you is that you would actually encounter the living word, Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus through the scriptures, that you would behold his glory as you came to the scriptures. And so he says in like John chapter 1 and verse 14, in the beginning was the word He's talking about Jesus. It's capitalized there. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He's talking about Jesus' first coming. We've seen his glory. This is John. He's one of the guys that are there on that mountain. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And let me tell you something. When you encounter the living Christ, you won't be the same. Peter talks about this experience later when he's coming to the end of his life. 
He's a more mature Peter, and he reflects back on this. And he says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, We didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so then you think about, we talk about as a church all the time, and we're sent to go, and we're on a mission, and we're supposed to tell people about Jesus. But are you telling people about the Jesus that you've encountered or one that you just have heard information about? Because God's desire for you is that you would encounter the glory of God through the Scriptures. Yes, he's going to speak to you. Yes, there's information. That is true. I'm not saying in place of, not polarizing those two things. But in addition to, do you pray as you come to the Scriptures, I want to encounter the living Christ. I want to meet the person of Christ. Is your heart open to? Are you open to those things, to seeing him? What do you mean see? Most of us aren't going to physically see Jesus before we leave this earth. But Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18, open the eyes of our heart that we might see, and he talks about there, spiritual blessings. What about opening the eyes of our heart that we might see the living Christ who is the Word. The Word is living and active. He wants to encounter you through the Scriptures. And so then we think about, what would that lead us to? What does that do for us? Well, for many of us, if we had that encounter, we'd do the very thing. So I didn't want to mock Peter yet. We'd do the very thing Peter does in this passage. It's like getting up on the mountaintop, and you want to stay up on the mountaintop. And that's what happens with Peter. And so they're all, they don't know what to say. And I imagine, because Peter was the eyewitness that told this information to Mark, that what happened was that Peter told him, I said something that was really stupid, but I didn't know what I was saying. And so Mark was so gracious to put that in the Bible. <laughs> it's good for us to be here. You think? You think. You're seeing the glory of God. That is the understatement of all understatements. Mark's so gracious, he says he didn't know what he was saying. But then there's that other statement that he says there. We should build something. That's weird. This is awesome. Let's build something. I mean, I guess if you're like really handy and that's like what you like to do, maybe that makes sense for some reason. But what Peter's saying here is the same thing basically that he said when he rebuked Jesus back in chapter 8. After Jesus said, I am the Christ, and then he tells him, or he tells him what it means to be the Christ. He says he's going to die and he's going to rise from the dead after three days. And Peter says, no, not you. No, not the Christ doesn't die. That's not for you to do. And he tempts Jesus to be a king without a cross. What's happening here is that Peter's thinking of the Feast of Tabernacles, which would celebrate the exodus of people out of Egypt and was going to be celebrated when the Messiah came because the Messiah came in glory and he's going to rule and he's going to reign. And he's saying, here it is, you're in glory. And he's again trying to be, have, tempt Jesus to be Christ without the cross. And what he's saying is, let's stay here on this mountain. But Jesus already told him, you've got a mission. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross. It's again, he wants to pause. And we've got this designed in us, a desire for the glory of God. And what we'll be tempted to do is have these mountaintop experiences. And this past week, I was speaking at a seminary. A lot of people go to seminary because they love to study the Bible and they love to pray. And they just want to stay there and they forget there's a mission to go out on. See, you're not here on this earth to have a mountaintop experience. You're here to live on mission. But he's so gracious, he gives us those mountaintop moments to charge us up, to refuel us, to encourage our souls, to then send us out on that mission. Because here's here's what's going to happen. It's like uh, the great philosopher Andy Bernard once said. A couple of you know who I'm talking about. Nard Dog from The Office. If you've seen that sitcom, he says one time, I wish someone had told me it was the good old days before they were over. Let me tell you something. The place that we're going to go to is way better than this place. 
There'll be no pain. There'll be no suffering. There'll be no tears. There'll be no sin. We long for that place, and we should long for that place. But when we get to that place, we're going to tell stories of what it was like here. And there's things that we do here that we aren't going to be able to do there. You're not ever going to know in heaven what it's like, if you haven't done it here, to tell somebody what it is to be separated from God, to be reconciled to him by sharing the gospel with that person and seeing them place their faith in Jesus. Because there won't be any lost people there. You're not going to be able to, as the Baileys mentioned, we're going to have, you know, if you fill out the card today, you can have an impact on somebody who's being trafficked. There aren't going to be people that are being trafficked. There aren't going to be people that are being objectified when we get to heaven, which is glorious and awesome. But let me tell you something. Don't come to the end of your life and go, I wish I had. You're not going to have the blessing of taking your possessions as a wealthy person, which if you live in America, you're wealthy, as a wealthy person of taking your possessions and giving to people who have less. Because there's not going to be poverty. And so I'm going to tell you right now, you're living in the days right now. The day of salvation is now. It's during the church age. It's during this time period that we get to live on mission. And we're going to spend, the mountaintop is going to be way better. But you're, you're living in a time right now. Don't miss it. If anyone's ashamed of me and my words, this adulterous and sinful generation, I'll be ashamed of him. Let me give you a glimpse of my glory. And then what does that lead to? It leads to, it should lead to us being better at listening. We should be more receptive to listening to God's word, listening to his leading, listening to God speaking. And so we must behold his glory and we must listen to his word. So you look and see what happens next in verse 7. Then a cloud appeared, enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. It sounds just like his baptism. This is my son whom I love. Only this time, instead of being directed to Jesus, it's being directed to the disciples. But then it followed by a command. Listen to him. Listen to him. And you think about this. This is a unique experience. You don't see this all throughout the Bible. Jesus isn't doing something, and then, all, then he appears in his glory, and then something else happens, and he appears in his glory, and then he gets in a fight with the Pharisees, and appears in his glory. This doesn't happen all the time. This is an amazing experience. The light, that he dwells in unapproachable light, his shining force from him, they don't even have words to describe it. And so you'd think if he's going to give a command, one command, it's going to be significant. And he doesn't command them, see more of his glory. In fact, it's interesting, if you look at this passage, everything's about the visual. What they saw, he was transfigured, this light that came for him. And then the command is, hear him, listen to him, which is tough because we're not great at listening, most of us. There are a few of you that are gifted listeners. You listen well. The rest of us, that is a difficult command. If you think about it, there's limitless analogies that I could give of how bad we are at listening. Have you ever had this conversation with a friend or a spouse? They say, hey, we're going to do this thing, and you say, you didn't tell me about that. But then there's documented text message history. <laughs> and they told you you weren't listening. Or you miss a phone call. And you might, it's, it's possible you just leave your phone in the room, but you weren't, you weren't waiting for that phone call. You weren't anticipating. You weren't listening for that phone call. Or do you ever find yourself, and you don't have to respond, you know verbal response is necessary, you don't have to raise a hand, I don't want you to feel too convicted. Have you ever talked to someone before, and really what you're waiting for is their mouth to stop moving so you can say the next thing? Anyone who laughed, I think, has done it. It's because we're not listening. I saw this week, I was telling my wife, a blog that had several alarm clocks on it for people that sleep through their alarm clock. They don't even hear their own alarm clock. And they had all these extreme alarm clocks. One was shaped like a dumbbell, that you actually had to do 30 bicep curls before it would turn off. You couldn't, there's no button hit. You can't trick it. It's got some sensor in it to do that. There was another one that had puzzle pieces on top of it. You actually had to put the puzzle together. So I guess they're thinking, if your mind's working that well, you're probably staying up. There was one, and this was the one that I thought, that's probably what I'd go for. It was 113 decibels. 
which the write-up said that was just shy of a jackhammer. And then it had four red flashing lights on it, and it had a, a mattress shaker that you'd put underneath your mattress so that when it started going off, it would shake the bed. There was, a, there was another one, I don't know if, you, if any of you remember laser tag. There was a little laser tag guy and you were supposed to put him at different spots in the room and the alarm wouldn't go off until you woke up and shot the laser tag thing. The very fact these products exist is a demonstration we are not good at listening. We struggle to listen. There's lots of reasons. Spiritually speaking, sometimes it's because we're just like Peter. We're doing all the talking. We should be listening. Think about your prayer life. How much time in your prayer life is just pausing to listen he promises to bring back words that you've planted in your heart. When you've spent that time in his word, let him speak. How much time uh, is spent not just talking, but just being busy? We just don't pray. We don't read the scripture because we're busy. If the IRS called, you'd answer. We've got the God of the universe wanting to speak to us through his word, but we're too busy. We're busy. There's sin. Sin hardens us and stops us. There's lots of reasons why we fail to listen. But you think about what's happening here in this passage. Jesus has just given some incredibly tough teaching. In Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38, then he gives this great promise. And then the father steps in and he says, listen. It's like any of you parents, you have one of your, you know, maybe your wife, husbands is saying to your kids, go to, go to bed, girls, go to bed. Five minutes later, go to bed. Brush your teeth. Use toothpaste. We actually have to say that at our house. No, that was necessary. We say another time. Go to bed, and there's like still they're coming up. They have reasons. There's all kinds of thought why. And then what I'll do sometimes at our house is I'll come in with the most authoritative, fatherly voice I have without screaming. Girls, go to bed. Listen to your mom. That's what's happening here. They're not listening. Jesus is just given. Hey, you got to go. I'm going to the cross. You're going to have to go to the cross. No, no, not you. Get behind me, Satan. Then he teaches, and you think, okay, now they got it. <laughs> they don't. And so Peter tries to do the same thing again. And then the father steps in and says, this is my son, whom I love. And he's not talking to Jesus. He's talking to them. You, listen to him. He's speaking to us. Listen. He is speaking. Listen to him. Do you hear him? He's speaking to each one of us. He's telling us what he desires for our lives. He's speaking through his word. He wants to encounter us through his word. He's not just giving us facts so we can answer them on a quiz someday. He wants us to know him so that when we share him, we're sharing. He's so glorious, we have to talk about him. Listen to him. It reminds me of a story that I read this week about a, a missionary. His name was Clarence Duncan. Mr. Duncan went to the Tao people in Africa. And it was back in 1985 uh, when he went to them. And he went and began to share with them that he was going to be living there, told them his name. Mr. Clarence is what they called him. And they asked him, why did you come here? And he said, well, I came here to tell you about Jesus, the Messiah. And they let him settle into the village and live there. And a few months later, one of the chief elders of the village came to him and said, do you know why it is that we let you come and live here? And he said, I hadn't really thought about it. It's primarily Muslim, a uh, place that he was coming to to tell about Jesus. And he said, because what happened was 21 years ago, a man came to us. And we asked him what his name was, and he said, Mr. Clarence. He said, that's not an African name, by the way. And we asked him what he was here to do, and he said to tell us about Jesus the Messiah. And what happened was he began to tell us about Jesus the Messiah. Four people placed Jesus, their faith in Jesus as their Savior. We ran those people off. We killed Mr. Clarence. Then you come 21 years later and tell us your name's Mr. Clarence. You want to tell us about Jesus the Messiah? We were scared. So we let you stay. 
He ministers amongst this village for a few years. And then one day, 24 elders come to his house. The leader comes and says, we want to ask you questions about Christianity. Can we do that? He said, yeah, that, that sounds great. He said, but here's the thing. I'm only going to answer you from the Bible. And so he gives each one of them a Bible that's in their language. And they, they start to ask questions, and he just picks up the scriptures. And he's, they, answer, they ask a question, he answers from the Bible. The first question was, why do you Christians worship three gods? You know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he just opened his Bible, Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then he told them, Jesus says the same thing in the New Testament. And they began to listen to him. And they talked until 5 o'clock that afternoon, asking questions, and he would just walk around answering from the Bible. At the end of their meeting, one of the leaders, a guy named Mr. Abu, came to him and said, can I come back and see you in a week? And he said, yeah, sure, that'd be great. He didn't think a lot about it. The guy leaves. He comes back a week later. And he says, do you know why we came to your house that day? And I said, well, to ask questions about Christianity. He said, that's not why we came. He said, we have been praying for three days and using our magic. And our plan was that when we started asking you questions, we were expecting you to fall down on the ground, not be able to answer the questions, and be dumb, and then die. But instead, you picked up your Bible and you began to move around. And so we knew that your spirit was more powerful. And then he said, I want to become a Christian but can I first tell you my story? I said, sure, tell me a story. He said, back, and he told you know, so many years ago, he said, when I was a boy, we lived in this village, we weren't Muslim or Christian. We just had kind of our own religion, and I used to go play on this hill on the backside of our, our village, and one day I was up on this hill, and this bright light started to shine around me, and a book came towards me, and a hand was holding the book, and I heard a voice say, to read. And I didn't know how to read, so I protested. I said, I've never been to school. I don't know how to read. And again, the voice said, read. And so I read. People from the village had seen this light shining around this hill, and so they were running towards this. When I came out of there, they thought that I had died because they thought they saw a fire. And I told them what happened, that I had read, and they started to mock me because they knew that I couldn't read. They knew I hadn't been to school. And so then they brought me a book, and I could read the whole book. Some Muslim leaders found out about that. They came to our village, trained me in what it was, in the laws of Islam, the rules of Islam, and I became one of their most ardent speakers. For 15 years, I would speak against Christianity. And he said, uh, we came to your house, and you read Deuteronomy 6.4. Do you know what the hand and the voice had me read from that book? He said, it was Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord is one. He said, I knew at that moment that your God was the one true God. And then the guy said, well, why'd you keep asking me questions? He said, because I wanted the rest of the leaders to hear about the one true God. So I pretended like I didn't believe so they could hear the good news about Jesus from you. And he placed his faith in Christ. God was speaking. He wasn't listening. Even a supernatural experience. It took him 15 years. But did you see, even in that, did you see how God was speaking? It was through his word. He was speaking through his word, Deuteronomy 6.4, through the missionary who would only speak the word to them. So God's speaking to us. He's speaking through his word. And there's the less authoritative revelation. You see his creation. You know there's got to be something more. I read this week that China's got the largest telescopes ever been made, or uh, satellites ever been made, and they're going to look in his face. They hope to find the beginning of the universe. I hope they do too, because the heavens declare the glory of God. God's speaking to us. The question is, are you listening? So what's he saying here? It's interesting. Jesus doesn't actually speak in the transfiguration. But when it's all done, look at verse 8. Suddenly when they looked around, 
They no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So Moses is gone, Elijah is gone, the light's gone, he's back to his original form, or the incarnated, you know, Jesus says they were used to seeing him. It says in verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. You don't, understand, you don't want to totally understand this until you see the cross, until you see the resurrection. They just didn't get it. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? They just saw Elijah. There's a prophecy that says that. And Jesus replied, be sure, Elijah does come first. And he restores all things. Why then is it written? He asked them another question. He goes back to the cross. The Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. But I tell you, and he points again to the cross, Elijah has come. He's talking about John the Baptist. And they've done to him everything they wish, just as is written about him. So John the Baptist says it come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And then Elijah will come. Elijah from the Old Testament is going to come again before the second coming of Jesus. But he's come. And look what they did to him. They killed him. What do you think is going to happen to me? And so as God is saying to them, listen to him, it applies to all teaching of Jesus. Listen to everything he has to say. But in our context, he's specifically saying, listen to what he's telling you about his cross and about your cross. He's just said it before this event. The Son of God, Son of Man, must die on a cross. He'll rise again after three days. And you need to take up a cross. And then he goes through it, listen to him, and then at the end, what does he say? What about me suffering? You're still not getting it. Listen to me. Listen. And what is the cross for Jesus? We saw last week, I quoted to you, Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He became a servant. He became obedient, even to death on a cross. The cross was the ultimate picture of obedience. When he's about to go to the cross, if there's any other way, not my will, your will be done. It's obedience. And so God wants to speak to us as obedience. Your cross is your next step of obedience. And so what is he saying to you? And I hope that the scriptures that we look at today be like an appetizer to you. That would whet your appetite for more of his glory and then you'd be able to then open your ears to hear what he has to say to your life. 